Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. We're in the middle of a series called No Regrets. And the reality is this, is no one has no regrets. I mean, we all have regrets. Let me share one of mine with you. Having a series on regret on Mother's Day might be one of my regrets. Um, the reality is, is uh, we planned out these series. We saw that Mother's Day was coming. We're like, should we interrupt the series for a message to moms? We're like, no, no, no. We've all got regrets. Let's just talk about them. Because moms, you got regrets too. I mean, things that we wish we would have done with our families. Dads, you got them too. The reality is uh, we're going to walk through these regrets. But it's interesting. Everybody, sometimes people think regrets are all the same. They're not. We've been looking uh, at the book of Isaiah, but we've also been taking a look at the research on regrets. There's a guy by the name of Daniel Pink, and he writes this book called The Power of Regret, because regret, if you understand them, you can turn them around to be a powerful force in your life to live with fewer regrets in the future. But what he says is not all regrets are the same. So we looked at week one, if you were with us then, we talked about foundation regrets. Foundation regrets are this. It's not a one, one and done, like, oh, it's this one moment in life I regret. It's Small little decisions in the wrong direction. Think of saving for retirement, right? Someone who doesn't do that, they get to their retirement years and like, oh, I shoulda, coulda, woulda. It's a regret based off of a long series of decisions. Week two, we talked about moral regrets. These don't take much explaining, right? There's a line here. I said I'd never cross of it. And then I found myself on the other side of it. Moral regret. This week, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about boldness regrets. What are they? It's simple. It's when we played it safe and we did not take the risk. We thought about it, but because of maybe the fear of failure, maybe intimidation or just insecurity, or maybe somebody had expectations on our lives. We're like, oh, I really want to take the risk. I really want to do this. I have dreams. And we just played it safe. The pain of the regret is this. It's the big what if. What if I stuck with my dreams, and you saw a video just now of all these people who, like, they could have stopped, they could have not persevered, they could have not had the courage. What if I spoke up more? Well, what if I didn't cave into people's expectations of me? What if I didn't fear failure at work? What if I wasn't afraid to ask her out? A boldness regret. What if I stepped out of my comfort zone? So with boldness regrets, they can all be summarized with this. We just settled, Right? We settled for something that was less than what we had dreamed of. Why? We just didn't take the risk. We didn't put forth the effort. Now, listen to this real quick. These come in two forms, okay? Boldness regrets take two forms. The first is this. It's when we lack courage to step out. It's like we're at a place and we know that the thing that we should do is this next new venture. It's moving from where we're at to something else to go, I'm going to take this chance. And we just lack courage to do it. But that's not all that boldness regrets are. Some of the stories that you saw in here, instead of courage, they actually needed perseverance. To not move to the new thing, but to stick to their dreams. To to have the perseverance to stay put. You guys own a Leatherman tool? You know what that is? It's the multi-tool that you fold open and there's pliers. 
The guy's name is Tim Leatherman, who invented that. He was traveling through Europe with his wife in this little Fiat that kept breaking down, and they had to keep pulling out different tools, and they never had the pliers they needed to fix the Fiat. Um, well, their first mistake was they bought a Fiat. Um, but they didn't have these, the right tools. And he's like, how great would it be if all those tools, like a Swiss army knife, were in one package, including pliers? And he's like, you know what? I'm going to develop one. I'm going to make it. And he thought, in a month, I'll have a prototype. Three years later, after constantly working on it, he finally had a prototype. He's like, great. Now that we figured it out, now we just need a buyer. Three and a half years later, after 500 rejections, think of it. 500 companies said, there's no reason we would want that tool. Cabela's finally sent them a letter, and they bought 500 of them. And today, Leathermans are sold all over the world, and they've been very successful. Why? Because he didn't give in to a boldness regret. He had the perseverance to stick with a dream that he had because he owned a rotten car. All right? Oh, Sorry. There's people who drive fiats. I apologize for that. Um, here's what the regret research tells us. And this is really, really interesting. I'll tell this by way of a story. Yesterday, I was at Azusa Pacific University. Uh, I was there watching DJ graduate from college. DJ is my soon-to-be son-in-law. And it was really fun just being a part of that experience. But uh, the speaker at the event said this, if you're the first person in your family to ever graduate from college, please stand up. And I was like, oh, this should be a couple people. of the graduates stood to their feet. And it was like this awe-inspiring moment that just said, so no one in your family has ever graduated from college, and you're the first. Like, my heart just starts pounding. I I don't know, a bug flew in my eye at that moment. And I got a little misty-eyed. Because here's people who are saying, you know what, I took the risk. Maybe even people told me I couldn't. But instead of having a boldness regret, they had the courage and the perseverance to stick with it. Here's what the research tells us. Listen to this. 20-year-olds have an equal amount of active regrets and inactive regrets. Now, this is what this means. An action regret means this. You did something. You you took action, and then you regretted taking that action. An inaction regret is, I stood right where I was at, and I just didn't. I I failed to really do the thing that I wanted to do. I I didn't do any action. 20-year-olds have the same The same amount of action regrets and inaction regrets. Here's what's interesting. If you're 50 years old, you have twice as many inaction regrets as you do action regrets. Pause and think about that for a minute. When you get older, if you're my age or older, you start playing it safe. Now, this makes sense for those of us who are 50. Looking back at a 20-year-old, you got nothing to lose because you got nothing. You don't have any money, probably don't even have a significant relationship. You don't have anybody dependent on you. You're like, why not take a risk? It's just me, right? You don't even have a retirement to lose. You don't have a house to lose, right? But the older we get, here's the sad part. We stop taking risks, even if it is about our dream. And so today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about these boldness regrets. Because each week, we're looking to the story of Isaiah And it's a complicated book with 66 chapters. And we're trying to make sense of the storyline in there. Now, I'm going to walk you through this storyline. And it's complicated, okay? So do this. Open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7. And it's going to introduce us to this king. His name is Ahaz. He's the king of Judah. 
king of God's people, and he's being threatened by two nations. But I'm a visual guy, and so I find it really challenging if I'm just reading the names of people to just skip over it real quick. So, diagram time. Here we go. Judah, there's to the south right there. They have these two armies, nations to the north of them, Aram and Israel. All right, and they have these two kings. The two kings are Rezin of Aram, also known as Syria, and King Pekah of Israel. Now, these two kings had a problem. Their problem was to the northeast of them was Assyria. Now, Assyria, they had just pounded on all of the other nations around them. They had conquered them. And the problem was this. Assyria was headed for the borders of those two kings. And so what did the two kings need? They needed a bigger team. They needed allies. So they approached this guy to the south. His name is King Ahaz of Judah. And they said, join our alliance. Now, Ahaz, he was kind of a smart guy. And so he's looked at Assyria and he looked at those two. And here's the deal. If you go to war, you want to join the winning team. Took a lot of research to figure that out. If you're going to war, you want to join the winning team. See, this isn't a war on ethics. It's a war on survival And Ahaz is hearing rumors about how powerful Assyria is. So Ahaz decides this. These two guys to the north of me, they never liked me anyways. (laughs) They've been enemies of mine. And so why would I partner with them? I'm going to pick Assyria and they're going to be my partner. And so he's tempted to do this. And the, the two nations to the north of them, Aram and Israel, they decide to attack Judah. They're like, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to conquer this guy, Ahaz. We'll put a, another king in his place that's going to be friendly to us, and we'll have a bigger army to fight the Assyrians. Now, by the way, in, in history, this is known as the Syro-Ephraimite War in the 8th century. Histor- historian buffs, you'll appreciate that. Everyone else, you don't care. So, verse 2, chapter 7. Here's how this story reads. Now, the house of David was told. This is Ahaz's group. Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Listen, they're afraid. Terror strikes Ahaz, the king, and his people. They get this wrong, they die. So God gives King Ahaz a promise. Now, the thing that Ahaz has in his back pocket is Isaiah the prophet. God speaks to Isaiah. Isaiah speaks to Ahaz. Point number two is that God promised God's promise would require both courage and perseverance. It would require a boldness on Ahaz's part. So God steps in. He gives a message to the, the prophet Isaiah for King Ahaz. This is what he says in the scriptures. Some of this will show up on the screen here. It says, say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. He was talking about the two kings to the north. He's like, listen, they're not a threat to you. Verse 6 says, let us invade, oh, they had plotted your ruins, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart, divide it amongst ourselves, and make the son of Tobiel king over it. Verse 7 says this, yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, it will not take place, it will not happen. That's God's promise to him. You're not going to be defeated. So King Ahaz, don't miss this, he gets clear direction from God, keep calm and carry on. That's literally what he said. You know where that comes from, right? 1939, the British government came up with that slogan when the the Germans were coming in to drop bombs. Keep calm and carry on. But Ahaz, he has received this message not from his government, but from Almighty God. It's one of those that says, 
stay put. Don't move. Don't think about partnering with the Assyrians. All you need, you think you need them? I'll be your God. I'll be your defender. That's God's promise. And those two nations will not conquer you. But don't miss this. Number three is, so God's promise also came with a warning. Listen to it. In verse 9, if you have your Bibles open, look at it. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Here's your option. You trust me. If you don't, you're going to get jacked. You're going to get defeated. You're going to get worked by these. You will not even stand at all. You got one shot at getting this right. The existence of Judah is at stake. It's the existence of a nation. They need to trust that God will deliver them and stand firm. So don't form a partnership with Assyria. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, God says, I'm giving you my word on it, but tell you what, I think you're going to need a sign. In verse 11, it reads, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether the deepest depths or the highest heights. What does that mean? God just gave him a blank check. Tell you what, you tell me what you want. Tell me, you tell me what you want me to do for you as just a reminder that I am with you and I will be your defender. Listen to what Ahaz says in verse 12. Wow, he blows it. Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Doesn't that sound noble? No, no, no. It sounds like he's saying, God, I totally trust you. Like, I'm not, I don't even need a sign. But you know why he doesn't need a sign? Because he's already determined in his heart what's he, what he's going to do. He's getting on the phone to call the Assyrians and be like, hey, we'd be happy to be partners with you in this war. Isaiah calls him out in verse 17 because Ahaz failed to obey God and it led to a life of regret. Here's how this goes down. Verse 17 says, The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. He said, I've already given you my promise that those two nations to the north, they won't get you. I'll take care of them. But because you didn't trust me, that's fine. I'll find someone who will. But Assyria is going to roll over you. King Ahaz failed to be bold. He failed to have courage. He failed to have perseverance to stay put, to trust God to save him. Now, there's something interesting here. Um, When Isaiah invites Ahaz to test God, this is what it says. Quote, will you try? He says, ask the Lord your God for a sign. Ask the Lord your God for a sign. And after he says, no, 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 I don't, I don't need a sign. Then Isaiah says, will you try the patience of my God? Oh, he doesn't say your God. He's like, okay, th- this is fine. And like, God's giving you a promise. He's giving you a sign. And you're like, no, 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 I don't want to test God. He's like, fine, you don't want him to be your God? Isaiah says, he'll still be my God. But if you don't want him, God's not going to force his way into your life then, Ahaz. Then God gives Isaiah a sign. Hang with me, okay? We're still going through this storyline. And in the end of this whole long storyline, I'm just going to land on three questions for you. God provided a sign. Instead of to Ahaz, he actually gives it to Isaiah. And he provided a sign that he was going to be with them and he wanted to save them. You still in chapter 7? Look at verse 14. God's sign is found in this. And this might sound familiar to some of you. 
It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And you may know that the name Emmanuel means this. It means God with us. Okay, hang with me. This is what makes Isaiah complicated. It makes it complicated because commentators say this. Okay, so the sign to Isaiah is that there's going to be a child that's born from a, a virgin. Well, you know where that's from, right? We all recognize that's actually a quote from Matthew. Matthew quotes Isaiah later on when Jesus shows up. Like the sign that you're going to be saved is this virgin will give birth to a, a boy. And it's, it's the, the precursor for Jesus, right? It's the prediction of his, his birth. But wait, wait, wait. This is written 700 years before Jesus would ever show up. So what's the promise to Isaiah? So who's the kid? It actually means two things. In the very next chapter, chapter 8, Isaiah gives birth to a baby. Uh, Wait, let me clarify that. (laughs) Isaiah's wife gives birth to a baby. I just want to make sure y'all are listening. There are miracles, right? So Isaiah, uh, his wife gives birth to this baby, and uh, they name him, this is the longest name in the, uh, in the Old Testament. You ready? Meher Shalal Haz Baz. That kid in school got beat up a lot. His name actually means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. What it, what it means is this, is this is something that the warriors, soldiers would shout at each other once they defeated their enemies. They'd be running toward them to like take all the spoils that they could. Quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. It's a reminder that they wouldn't be defeated by those two nations. So Isaiah has this son now that's the promise of God to protect him. Now, commentators also say this. Oh, by the way, Side note on this. Well, how, how come it says that she'd be born of a virgin if it's Isaiah's wife? Like, we're pretty sure we know how that works. That word for virgin actually can mean young woman or virgin. So it's actually the, 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 the story of Isaiah, your young wife is going to give birth to a boy. And this is what you're to call him. 700 years later, though, commentators also say this. There's two meanings for verse 14, about that child that we be born, that you will call him Emmanuel, that means God with us. All this takes place, Matthew writes this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the second half of the meaning of that text would point to Jesus' birth and his final salvation for his people. Think about this. Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God is with us, and he desires to save us. So here's the beautiful thing for us. We're reading this 2,000 years after Jesus came. So we know this. The benefit for us is this, is he got to prove himself over and over and over again that he really was God's son. Examples. Turns water to wine at a wedding. He fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fish. He walks on water. He healed those who couldn't walk. He raised the dead. He claimed to be God when he forgave sins. He claimed that he would die 
and then come back to life three days later, he proved that he was God's son, which means this. It means two significant things. Number one, that God is with us and God desires to save us. I'm going to say that again. It means two things, that God is with us and God desires to save us. So question, why would we have boldness regrets? Why would we ever let fear intimidate us from stepping out into something new? Why would we ever let insecurity overwhelm us from persevering the road that God has called us to? If he's with us and he's promised to be with us. If he says, I'm Emmanuel, he sent his son, he proves it through all these miracles. And he just says, I'm with you. You know that when Jesus rose from the dead and he was with people for 40 days after that, before he left, he gave this great commandment. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of the entire world, of all these nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then he gave this promise again, and surely I'll be with you to the very end of the age. So question, when you have a concern, a crisis, a mountain, a, a, a problem right in front of you, and you're like, I don't know what to do. Do I stay put and persevere, or do I move in this direction and show courage in that? Why would we ever let fear or insecurity or other people's expectations dominate our decision when Almighty God is with us? You with me? Well, it's interesting because the story doesn't end there. I'm almost done with the storyline. Let me give you one more. In Isaiah chapter 36 and 37... There's a guy that shows up on the scene. His name is King Hezekiah. He's actually King Ahaz's son. And he's threatened by a new enemy. The map? He's threatened by Assyria. The very group of people that his dad wanted to partner with. But this time, the Assyrian king, his name is Sennacherib. Uh, Another unfortunate name. And by the way, I'm going to give you the very condensed version of this story. In chapter 37, verse 10, this king of Assyria, he sends a message to Hezekiah. And the the reader of this message, he doesn't just read it to the king. He speaks it in front of all his faculty, all of the people of his kingdom in in his government, in this room that they can gather. And he, he says this. The messenger proclaims this. Do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Surely you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? He's taunting them. Hezekiah, look at all the other nations. We wrecked them. And you think your God is going to step in and help you. I love what Hezekiah does here. Hezekiah had the courage to just pray for God's wisdom and guidance. Verse 14 of Isaiah 37 says this. Hezekiah received the letter from the messenger, and he read it. Here's his threat. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord, get this, and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He takes this threat, and he's like, God, here it is. It's yours. I don't know what to do. But he just took him and he spread it out before God and he just prayed, God, what do you want me to do? 
It's so interesting because he doesn't list, God, this is really important. God, are you, are, are you listening? Because we're about to get destroyed here. The Assyrians, they're really big and ugly, and I'm deeply concerned. He just lays it out, and he's like, God, you tell me what to do. You got concerns? You got mountains in your life? You got crossroads where like, God, do I go here? Do I go here? Do I stay here and persevere? I mean, I thought, I thought you gave me this career dream that I was on, and now I'm, I feel like I'm stuck at where I'm at. Do I need to move into something new? Or do I need to keep persevering in where I'm at? Or God, there's people coming after me. There's people that don't like me. God, things are threatening to me right now. Do you pause and spread it before God and say, God, what do you want? God, what do you want me to do? I will tell you this. You will never, ever regret laying something before God and saying, God, what do you want me to do? And it says this. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. He will not enter this city. He will not even shoot an arrow here. And it goes on to say this. I'll summarize it for you. Then the angel of the Lord went out and he put 185,000 Assyrian soldiers to death that night. The king of Assyria broke camp, withdrew, and he went home. The very next verse says this. The king of Assyria had two sons. They had their father killed. That big old threat that was right in front of you, in three verses, God takes care of it in a pretty violent way. I'm guessing you don't have hundreds of thousands of people coming to fight you and kill you. (laughs) But it doesn't mean your problems aren't significant. Would you be willing to be like Hezekiah? And lay it out before God and say, God, what do you want? It brings me to this. I'm going to wrap this up pretty quick with just three questions. Number one is this. Do you need courage to do something new? Or do you need perseverance to stay the course? I don't know what's going on in your world. But I'll bet you when I ask that question, you feel the tension the tension of, yeah, I feel like I'm stuck. I, I, I need to move or I feel like I'm, I'm being pushed aside and I need the, the perseverance to, to stay the course. This first question is just about this. Do you recognize the tension you are living in that there's a decision to be made? God, I need courage. Or God, I need perseverance. And this is the second one. How are you going to know what to do? Would you be Hezekiah? The question is, have you laid out your concerns before God? And you see, it's not, it's not always just a one-time thing that just says, you know what, yeah, I'm just going to pray. God, what do you want? In Isaiah, particularly in the, the chapters coming right after this, it talks about waiting on God. Waiting on Him. God, i got a decision to make. I'm going to keep laying it before you until you give me your wisdom, your guidance, and your direction. If I could point to this, it says in Isaiah 40, and by the way, if, if you need to lay out something before God, I would highly encourage you, just write this down, Isaiah 40, go to the end of the chapter, and it reads this way, do you not know, and by the way, you can't read this without having a little bit of attitude, okay? So when you go home and you read this this week, please have a little bit of attitude. Do you not know? Have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. 
He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Has this COVID season just been wearisome to you? He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths, those who never seem to run out of energy, even youths, they grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, those who wait in the, on the Lord, those who keep coming to him will do this. They will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not faint. Listen, whatever God calls you to, he will see you through. You just got to figure out what he's called you to. So lay it out. Lay it out and ask him. Because of this, because he's Emmanuel, God with you. This just brings me to this third and final thought. When you know that you're in a tension point of making a decision and you lay it out before God and then he shows you, then you're just left with this third and final thing. How are you going to demonstrate risky obedience so you can live with fewer boldness regrets? When you're not sure, but you realize you're in the situation, and you lay it out before God, and he answers, the only thing that's left is this, so go get after it and have courage to demonstrate not just obedience, but there's always going to be risky obedience See, God doesn't call you to be safe all the time. He calls us to be obedient. Boldness, regrets, if you want to live with fewer of them, I just encourage you, read this again. Read over these notes. If you feel the tension, lay it before God and be willing to have the courage or perseverance to either stay the course that he calls you to or step out into the unknown because God will meet you there. Because he's Emmanuel, almighty God, and he is God with you. Amen? Let's bow our heads and absorb this for just a moment. Hmm. God, for some reason, I'm just thinking about moms and dads in the room. And I, I pray that you would give them courage and perseverance to tell their kids about Jesus. So when those kids are 30 and 40, that they wouldn't have a boldness regret, but they knew that they did everything they could. Lord, when those kids are teenagers, and they're less interested in their parents and what their parents have to say, would you give them courage to keep parenting and pointing them to Jesus? Lord, I'm thinking about marriages right now, couples in this room. When they're experiencing difficulties in their marriage, God, I pray that they would have the courage to keep reaching out, the perseverance to stick it through. God, I think about graduates, high school graduates, college graduates, that they would lay their futures before you and say, God, what do you want from me? And would they trust you, that you are good and you have plans for a a future for them? Lord, I think about those people in this room who are my age and older. That maybe we've been playing it safe. And we've taken a whole lot less risks. Lord, help us to be bold for you. Not foolish, but bold 
to walk after the things that you call us to, God. Give us perseverance to not think that we have nothing left to offer because we know that you are God with us. You are all-powerful, Emmanuel. Thanks, God, for your grace in our regrets and for the weeks and months to come that you might call us to something great. God, we want to experience your power and your presence with us. Help us to be bold enough to do that. And everybody said, amen.